Happy Monday, Liberty Kitty Cats, and welcome back to the second week of this very special debate month here on the flagship Lions of Liberty podcast. You're going to hear a great debate today between ace archist of Twitter fame and Brad Palumbo. Really looking forward to that, but I got to let you know, this entire month, this entire month, five Mondays, five debates, celebrating my birthday. By the way, just turned 41. Great way to celebrate my birthday is by joining the Patreon, patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty, where you get access to all of these debates beforehand. Patrons get to see the live editions of these debates before they get released here to the public. Also, this entire month of debates is sponsored by Top Lobster over at toplobster.com. Top Lobster makes the absolute best Liberty gear imaginable, including this killer legalized freedom hat, uh, as well as the Scott Horton and the war shirts that I have in my collection. Some great stuff over there at toplobster.com. You're going to want to use discount code ROAR for 10% off your order. And again, you're going to want to get early live access to these debates. Please head over to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Toss me a little birthday present. Help us achieve the dream of podcasting full time by supporting us on Patreon and joining the pride at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. We need to empower people with not just the philosophical tools, but the inspiration to break free from the system. Welcome to the flagship Lions of Liberty podcast, your weekly dose of education, inspiration, and real-world application from the top minds in the Liberty movement. If you want liberty, we need to be better leaders, better husbands, better fathers, better friends, better businessmen. Today, we are going to be debating the topic, the premise, the resolution is political violence is never acceptable in democratic societies. To debate that resolution, I have two fine young gentlemen with me. First, he is a policy correspondent at Fee. He is an independent journalist. He has been on this program before. His name is Brad Palumbo. Brad, are you ready to roar? Yeah, thanks, man. All right. I thought you would be. And Ace has also been on this program fairly recently when I did a little roundtable of some of my favorite Twitter accounts. Ace is one of them. Ace Arcus, are you ready to roar? I am ready. Thank you so much, Mark. And thanks for Brad for uh, doing this. Yeah, thanks. All right. And uh, taking the affirmative in this position is going to be Brad. Taking the negative of this resolution is going to be Ace. And before we get into uh, your little opening statements here, why don't we just get a little background on this thing? How did this resolution first come up? I believe it started with a tweet from you, Brad, something about slapping politicians. Yeah. So what had happened was Emmanuel Macron had been slapped by somebody uh, and it, the video had gone viral. So he's uh, the leader in France or whatever. And I think the person was mad about COVID lockdowns or some violation of their rights. I don't remember the exact details, but it prompted me to say that politicians, slapping politicians is never acceptable, which it is funny, but it's not acceptable. And I'll get into why. Uh, and then after discussing it, we kind of narrowed that down to in a democratic society, because I do think it's different if you're talking about a king versus an elected official you can campaign, campaign and vote against. My monarchist friends are getting very upset right now, Brad. <laughs> Ew, boo. Monarchism <laughs> gross. All right. Well, that, we'll save that debate for, for a different episode. Uh, but yeah, and then I think, yeah, you, I, I'm not sure who brought up the idea of a debate first, but I know that Ace kind of chimed in and said, hey, I'll do it. And I yeah. know from experience that Ace has never seen a debate online that he was not willing to spend countless days, <laughs> nights, weekends participating in. So it seemed like a perfect. That's right. <laughs> yep. That's, that's exactly it. That's what prepared me for this. <laughs> 
All right. Well, excellent. And uh, with that being said, we'll get right to it. It is Lions of Liberty Octagon, Lions of Liberty Debate Month. Ring the bell, kids. Let's go. And uh, again, the, the resolution, vi- political violence is never acceptable acceptable in democratic societies. I will give a little uh, sneak preview. Um, not really a formally an Oxford-style debate, but I did take a little poll of some of our patrons uh, in the week preceding this recording of this debate. And uh, ahead of time, it was 30 to 8 out of the people that decided to respond to the poll. Uh, 30 to 8 took the position that they took the negative position that the same position that ace is going to be taking so brad is facing uh the uphill battle based on the the, the rough numbers coming into this thing uh but that being said brad you are taking the affirmative of this resolution so i'm gonna let you think start things off uh you have some reasonable amount of time as we discussed before, before the show three to five minutes or so yeah look i always love uh arguing with people and being controversial and being the center of attention so i will take the uphill challenge with the audience uh and embrace it Look, to give you some background on this, I've had the pleasure of getting to know Senator Rand Paul, who many people in the liberty movement know and like is one of the foremost libertarian politicians in America. But even if you set aside ideology, he's also one of the most prominent victims of political violence in America. He was at the famous congressional baseball shooting where a deranged Bernie Sanders supporter attempted to murder him and a bunch of other Republican members of Congress. He was assaulted viciously by his neighbor with ribs broken and months of pain and medical care that was needed. And he was more recently mobbed with his wife outside of, uh, I believe it was a GOP convention in where police had to literally hold back a mob from assaulting them. So for me, this issue comes through the lens of the politicians, some of the politicians I admire the most being specifically targeted by, for violence, because our ideas as libertarians are outside the norm to some extent, and they're not the most favorable ideas. And for me, that's the fundamental thing. In a democratic society, we have options. We have the freedom of speech. We can campaign. We can work for change. I mean, we've seen criminal justice reform, tax reform, all sorts of things be accomplished in the last few years through that democratic process, marijuana legalization. A bunch of things. Change can be achieved through peaceful and persuasive, non-coercive means, which is what libertarians are supposed to be all about. Political violence, on the other hand, is really, in my mind, impossible to justify in any democratic society. It's, it may be different if we were talking about like living in the Republic of Iran, uh, where you're, you've got dictators and stormtroopers, and you don't have options other than maybe to flee. In, we're blessed to live in still a relatively free society, and with that comes the responsibility to not engage in political violence, no matter how upset or passionate we get about these issues. And I care about all these things deeply. That's why I've made them my life's work. But anytime you cross that line, you immediately violate the non-aggression principle, first of all, for the libertarians out there. And two, you start a dangerous spiraling cycle that will result in people who do not deserve to be victims of violence getting hurt. All right, Brad, thank you very much. Ace moving along. Yeah. It is time for your opening statement. So I, I, before we get too far, I think it's important to break down exactly what democracy is ultimately, right? Because there's all these myths about democracy, but ultimately when you break it down, democracy is a political mechanism in which uh, the majority gains a legal right to inflict their will or their edicts on 
the minority. And this happens through violence, right? This happens through force. Every single law that you see passed is through democratic means is ultimately going to be enforced at the barrel of a gun, right? This is what um, every single law you can think of. And if we look through history, we see thousands of cases like everywhere about minorities being oppressed by people within democratic societies. And you can look at like uh, homosexuals being um, outlawed, homosexuality being outlawed, like with sodomy laws. You can see, um, of course, blacks being oppressed, Native Americans, all of these, all of these examples I could go on and on and on happened through democratic institutions, right? They were democratically um, initiated and then enforced through the state's enforcement mechanisms. And uh, even going on, like, when you really understand what these congressmen are, like these congressmen vote for horrible, horrible things, right? They are a part in a chain of effects, creating a, a scenario where the enforcers are legally allowed to, they kidnap people, right? That's what we would call imprisonment. They murder people. They, uh, through things like if you resist the state's authority, if you resist those democratic encroachments onto your liberties, they will throw you in a cage. And if you resist the cage, they will kill you. They do claim the right to use deadly force if you resist their um, encroachment. So I think it's really important to understand that these congressmen who, while you could say they're representatives in, in some sense, but I, I mean, I, I, I'll make the case later that I don't think that's even, uh, I don't think we can even call them representatives. But even if we assume that these representatives are still liable, morally liable for causing innumerable amounts of harm, both domestically and foreign policy, right? You have people, you have these uh, congressmen who vote on sanctions in foreign countries where children get starved as a result, right? Like the, the, there's no question about this. So it, it, I find it um, unquestionable to say that in terms of political violence, the political violence is the democratic system itself. Right. It, that's the initiator of the violence itself. And if you if I, you, uh, Mark, or I or Brad did any of these things that these congressmen do, we would be in jail or maybe even executed. And uh, I think the using political violence in some cases can be seen as just self-defense for through the nap. And that's my opening statement. All right. I can see that a, a big piece that this debate centers around is the concept of democracy. That is why we further defined it specifically to that type of government, uh, as Brad addressed earlier as well. Uh, so, Brad, why don't we try to hone in on that a little bit um, in your response here? So can you just address maybe more specifically um, Ace's argument that democracy itself is inherently violent? Uh, so we're already in sort of a violent political system, which I guess maybe introduces the idea that if, if that sort of violence through democracy is acceptable, why wouldn't another type of violence in response be, be acceptable? Yeah. So uh, it does depend on how we define democracy. And I, I will admit, I'm not using it in the literalist of terms, right? The absolute democracy of 50 plus one can vote for anything. Um, what, what I mean when we say democracy, and maybe this is shorthand that people shouldn't use, but we do use is a system that involves political freedom and accountability of political power to the people. So, if, for example, we don't have unfettered democracy. We have the First Amendment is anti-democratic and for good reason. But ultimately, if our elected leaders displease us, we can remove them from peaceable means. And that is what I'm talking about when I'm defining a democratic system here that justifies the difference between violence or nonviolence. As for the rest of this, I find this like the argument that's saying words are violence, right? Because 
What you're saying, essentially, that logic taken to its extreme means that having speed limits justifies assassination of the local like politicians that made them because ultimately speed limits are enforced by police officers. It's crazy talk. And it's a recipe for unfettered civil war breaking out in a country over things we could otherwise peaceably resolve through a democratic process. All right, Ace, I'll let you respond to that. Sure. Okay. Well, a couple things, right? Um, so it's true. We don't have an unfettered democracy, right? We don't have a direct democracy where the people vote on specific policy positions and it's a 50 plus one, right? But a republic is a democratic republic is a democracy by proxy, right? So uh, um, the people get together and they elect proxies into this place called Congress where they will then vote in a democratic basis on a democratic uh, field. Um, as to your other point, um, how with, with speed limits, um, you have the bill of rights address that. Oh, okay. I mean, the Constitution is the conservative equivalent of a gun-free zone sign, right? It's like you're asking the people who are in power, the people who are in power, have a monopoly on interpreting and enforcing that document. Why, like, we wouldn't trust like some if there was some, you know, tyrannical government, and we're like, oh, don't worry, we'll check our own power. That's what you're asking them to do with the Constitution. There's no like the checks and balances are ostensible. They're not actually literal, right? They just say they're going to check power, but they never actually, they rarely ever do in most cases. And for the speed limit example, it's like, no, I believe in proportionality. Obviously, the proportionality uh, comes in. It's like, yeah, there are levels of violence that are appropriate in certain circumstances. But I do think that if a cop does detain you, let's say, let's give an example of drugs, right? If a kid is being arrested for selling weed or something, I do believe that kid has a right to violently resist that police officer uh, under the nap. And even well, that's a- the starting point is that neither of us believe that kids should be arrested for marijuana usage, right? So, uh, to the extent though that you're, what you're suggesting is a society without the rule of law, and that's a society in which markets can't function, people can't live their life. Because whatever the law is, if you have the right to violently resist it because you disagree with it, what you have is just violent anarchy and civil war. So I don't see how that's tenable. As a, as a, do I think people should be arrested for marijuana? Absolutely not. But first off, resisting arrest will just get that kid killed more yeah, likely than not. Right. So it's bad advice. And secondly, um, this idea that when laws are wrong or immoral, which they often are, you can thus violently resist them. Well, people are always going to think that all laws, there's going to be some people that think it's wrong or immoral. And if that's always a recipe to not follow it and then violently resist, you're going to have a constant state of civil war. Okay. But when you were talking about the nap before, right, that was the kind of the starting point when you addressed before. The NAP says that you have a right to resist uh, violence, and that doesn't stop at just, you know, some normal criminal on the street. That is for everyone. That's for, like, people who would call themselves politicians as well as well as cops. There's no reason we should create this moral double standard. Uh, and, and given your point about, like, we, we live in a – there's no rule of law. Um, there's no really rule of law now, right? Because there's no rule of law to check the people in power to follow their own rules. And we, it's never questioned, why do these people have a right to make laws in the first place? Right. Yeah, let me let me respond to that, because okay. I, just, I just disagree with your point about I mean, your point's well taken about the Constitution not always being enforced. Trust me, that's very valid. But it is enforced all the time. There's been so many cases where the Supreme Court has struck down unconstitutional restrictions on the First Amendment, on violations of religious liberty, freedom of speech. This happens every day in courts across the country. 
right? There's literally hundreds and thousands of cases where government rules and overreach are struck down. The CDC's eviction moratorium was literally just struck down like a day or two ago or last week. I think I was traveling, so I don't know the exact day. The court system does act in this way. It doesn't do it perfectly, but it's also not asking the government to check itself. It's asking a different competing branch of the government to serve as a check. The system of separation of powers and checks and balances is a brilliant system. It's not perfect. It doesn't always work perfectly. For example, nobody could have anticipated Congress being absolutely feckless and pathetic and actually giving up their duties. But it does when it comes to the court system, I kind of reject the starting point that it doesn't do its job. It does it often. Now, does it do it always? No. But the answer then is we need to get more Neil Gorsuch's on the bench, and then it will. And we can do that through peaceful democratic means. Uh, okay. Something to hone in on there, Ace, because I think that comes down to a, a big difference here, because maybe if there's a point where you could say, oh, my God, the system doesn't work. It's not responding to the people in any way, shape or form in any way it's designed. Well, then maybe that does maybe that doesn't it would no longer fit Brad's definition of democracy in, in that case. So it, is there sort of a line where you where you'd see there might be an amount of which like something like the Constitution might be enforced, an amount of which we have the rule of law? I mean, where would you say the line can would end or begin where now violence is okay because the government is not you know functioning for the people in a sense. Well, I, I think defensive violence is always justified if you are being aggressed against, which I think um, what is what laws generally do. Um, I do want to touch on this point about the Supreme Court. It's true that the Supreme Court does make rulings, you know, one way or the other, and it does all, sometimes strike down unconstitutional laws. But that doesn't stop the people in Congress from instituting new laws and going around that. They do it all the time. Right. We have countless examples of uh, a law will be struck down by one court and then another court will enforce it. Right. This is actually um, um, John Hasness has an essay called The Myth of the Rule of Law about this, where he talks about two different uh, two different like courts will come to a different uh, resolution on a given like case or something like that. Right. Or a given law, whether it's uh, justified. And I know the Supreme Court is supposed to be the ultimate law of the land, but even that changes. Even sometimes they go they go back on their own laws. So there's no there's no real final arbiter like we're always uh, promised. Um, and uh, it, it doesn't change the fact that ultimately, uh, whether, you know, even if the court does strike down certain unconstitutional laws, it doesn't change my original uh, assertion in the beginning where it's like these laws are enforced by violence. And if we believe in self-ownership, if we believe in the nap that it's wrong to aggress against other people and that if someone is aggressed against them, they can defend themselves. Well, then that should apply to anyone who aggresses and not just, you know, uh, someone on the street. I don't see why. A now, again, I'm not giving advice for people to go out and start violently resisting police on the street. I'm not giving that advice. But ethically speaking, morally speaking, I do think that's perfectly justified for and for you to resist this violence through through the nap. Yeah. I, oh, well, sorry, Mike. Mark, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think this is another area we can kind of try to hone in on a little bit here, because I, I think another difference I'm seeing here is, you know, we're, we're talking about what's acceptable. Well, that's actually the definition in the resolution is acceptable. So maybe we need to talk about what acceptable means a little bit more, because if we're coming at it from a moral standpoint, you guys might both agree on, on the morality of, say, like the example from earlier of a teenager being arrested for marijuana. Yes, he's more he morally is allowed. I think we all agree to violently resist that. Um, well, but we might say it might not be wise. So I guess that's we have to kind of look at what the word acceptable means. Are we yeah, looking I don't at think I what's morally acceptable that, or what's actually. what's that? I would. I, so let me clarify that, because that is an important point. Uh, I, I think no one should be arrested for the drug war, of course. But uh, if you allowed some people to violently resist arrest, 
you, you have the collapse of rule of law if we gave that the permission slip. So I think that person has the right to have due process of law, have an attorney and defend themselves of the charges and also repeal qualified immunity so he can sue the cop if that cop abuses him. But no, I don't think anyone has the right to violently resist uh, arrest in, a, in any society that has rule of law. Can I jump in on that, Mark? Absolutely. Okay, thank you. Um, I, I think... It, if we do, you, you brought the nap earlier, so I assume you agree with the nap, or at least the tenants of the nap, right? Largely, but not absolutely. Okay. See, this could turn into a whole nother. Yeah, I don't want to get too. I don't. I don't want to get too. Well, off we topic. go wherever it goes. But um, I, I do want to say that if you say that there is under no sense, if we we have the rule of law, or I, ostensibly the rule of law, that we can ever like resist in some sense. It seems to me that all these people in the past, all these minority groups specifically who were oppressed in America, uh, were condemning them to a fate of saying that these people who actually did resist cops, like an example of this is the Stonewall riot, right? The famous Stonewall riots of uh, 1969 in New York. It's like they went out, they were going to be arrested by cops and who knows what was going to happen to them in jail. It was not a great time uh, for like to be homosexual during those times. Who knows what would have happened to these people in jail had they just submitted to the cops, but they didn't. They resisted and the cops backed down. It was one of the greatest moments in American history, in my opinion. And I think to say that they're never you're never morally justified to resist essentially condemns these people to a a fate of tyranny. Yeah, but that's the first off, just on the, the merits, violent political protest, it, like political science shows it hurts the cause on average. Most of the time, it does not help it. You look at the Black Lives Matter riots. Are many complaints about police brutality valid? Yes. Is burning things and assaulting people and dozens of people being killed in violent riots? I mean, you could just say that's political violence by people who are being harmed. I mean, this is it sets off a spiral where innocent people will be hurt. It's not as if we live in a society where you can always just proportionately respond exactly to the person who hurt you. It it will devolve and innocent people will be caught up very quickly in the violence. Okay, well, I I do want to clarify. I'm not saying political violence. Like my assertion is not that political violence is always justified in every scenario, but it can be justified. Right. So there's a difference there. And I'm also uh, with with the BLM stuff, the BLM stuff, they were mostly uh, targeting people who had nothing to do with the actual thing, with the their actual um, uh, the people who aggress on them, which would be the police in, in most cases. Right. So that I don't justify as libertarian. I think they were targeting people who had no who did not aggress against them. And I think that's wrong. The whole what reason I didn't burn the houses uh, of police officers. Uh, I think that would probably be uh, disproportional uh, violence, you know, obviously because the police are but why? They're killing people. They're no, but they're not. They're not in the process. Of, right. So if you go like if, if you go and track down someone who assaulted you a couple of days ago and you just kill him. Right. That's still murder. You know what I mean? So uh, even uh, even our legal standard understands that there's proportional levels of violence. It's not just one or nothing. Is it about proportionality or as much as whether it's defensive or, or aggressive? Because it's, right, it's both. It's it's both. So it, it has if it's if they're not constantly aggressing, that's one thing. But also if they are aggressing, there's also proportionality that plays into that aggression, depending on. But then the level. we have to get back to what is political violence. And for yes. me, when I hear political violence, I'm thinking I don't like this policy, this law, this ruling. So then, in a separate event. I'm going out and harming someone. I don't think of it as immediately responding to somebody committing violence against you, because then that's not really political violence. It's just violence. Political violence is the Bernie Sanders shooter uh, attacking the the police officers from Congress. It is, you know, crazy um, abortion, anti-abortion people bombing clinics. 
right? Like when it's a targeted because of a political belief or policy issue that they're displeased with, they're targeting people who they attribute the blame to often indirectly, right? Like Congress didn't come or, or your state lawmakers didn't come uh, and arrest that kid, but they did vote to ban marijuana. So that's how I'm viewing political violence. If, okay, uh, two things. Political violence, if I believe that I have a right to be free and a cop is infringing on that right, me defending myself from that cop would be an act of me asserting my own, you know, political freedom in some sense, right? So if that, uh, it's, in, it's still within the political sphere because the political sphere is being imposed on me. So if I, re- if I rebel against that or resist that with violence, that would, that would classify as political violence generally, generally speaking, right? This is why like revolutions and stuff like that are, as a, revolutions are just like individual rebellions on a mass scale, uh, generally. Um, and on the other point, it's like, those lawmakers are still responsible. If, if someone hires a hitman to go out and kill someone, right? Uh, both the hitman and the client are both guilty for that. They're both held responsible in our court system. So it's it, not the a, same direct relationship, though. How, how so? Lawmaker voting for a law with good intentions, <laughs> they think will make that they think will have an effect, and then it leads to consequences they didn't intend. Okay, but no, no, they do intend it because because even if they think it's going to lead to good consequences, they still intend for people who do not follow their law to be arrested. So they understand the consequences of them passing this law. They understand that by them passing this law, there will be children, who, uh, 18-year-olds and, you know, people who, depending on, you know, the level of drugs they're selling, people who could get life in prison for this, depending on, you know, what's in the bill. So when they sign on to these laws, they are responsible because they understand the consequences for one of them doing this. Um, so by that logic, any law is violent. And so then you can't have a society without laws that protect people's property and physical safety and health. Well, uh, so you can't def- defensive violence is fine. So if you have laws that enshrine defensive violence, like people who defended their property or defended their lives, that's one thing I would support that. So violence is usually new. Violence can be bad or it can be good. It's not saying that, you know, it's always bad or it's always good. No, no. Uh, defensive violence is fine. So if there's a law that says you're not allowed to murder, that would be a law that's defending a, ne- um, a negative right. It's, it's saying that you can respond violently to violence, right? That's what a law against murder is saying. Uh, whereas a law that just inf- imposes itself on people who are doing like nonviolent activities, that law is initiating violence against people. But, so there's but a the problem is that that standard, while we might agree with it in the abstract, in reality, that standard applied, it's so subjective what is aggressive and what is not. AOC would view depriving people as their health, of their health care as violence. Therefore, Republican politicians who vote against Obamacare should be shot and killed because they're, being, they're aggressing. My point is not that like, your theoretical amusings on it aren't correct. Maybe I agree with them. What I'm saying is that standard in practice, we have to draw a hard line and say no political violence ever. Because if we allow it under some slippery standard, it's going to be abused and immediately start a cycle where all of a sudden these terrible injustices are happening and innocent people are being caught up. All right, guys, I got to take a quick time out to tell you about our newest sponsors, Paloma Verde CBD. I am so excited about this sponsorship for a number of reasons. One, CBD is a freaking miracle. CBD has helped me with so many things in life, from insomnia to joint and muscle issues. You know, I'm old, guys. I just hit 40 last year. I'm almost 41. Almost 40 freaking one. 
I can use CBD. It really helps me out a lot. And uh, Vanessa and Carlos Abelar, who run this company, Paloma Verde, they are an awesome libertarian couple, the kind of couple you want to support in life, just like you want to support this podcast. Well, guess what? When you purchase your CBD from Paloma Verde over at PalomaVerdeCBD.com, you get to do it all. You get to support this amazing family. You get to support uh, my Latin American community. Of course, I married into a, a Mexican family, so I'm, I'm essentially a Latin American at this point as well. Uh, you get to support the Latin American community. <laughs> and uh, you also get an amazing product. Not only all of that, you get to support this podcast at the same time. We, of course, get a kickback from these sales and you get a huge discount by using our discount code. That discount code is ROAR, R-O-A-R. Use that discount code at checkout and you're going to get 25% off your order. 25 freaking percent off your order. And they have awesome stuff. Like I said, my favorites. I have them right here, actually. These uh, premium CBD gummies. These are legit. And I'm not kidding. The, the only bad part about these gummies is that they're so delicious that I kind of just want to eat them all at once. And you really don't need to eat all that CBD at once. Um, the gummies are delicious. These amazing salves they have. I tried one of these salves on my neck. I got a neck issue, guys. My neck's always sore, always hurting me. This salve, it is freaking magic, the salve that I use. You got to check out these products. As I chew on, as I choke on the CBD gummy, um, check it all out. PalomaBerdeCBD.com. Do not forget to use discount code ROAR for 25% off your order. does have to be an order over $75, but guess what? You also get free shipping over $75, so you're going to want to do it. Check it out. PalomaBerdeCBD.com. Discount code ROAR. Okay, just because some people can misinterpret exactly what what is justified political violence or what is justified violence, that doesn't render all violence unjustified. You know what I mean? Like there's some people who it think does it's a- the justification itself is so vague that it's, it, it being abused and exploited is inevitable. Do you think uh, uh, aggression is vague generally? I mean, there, uh, if we look at the legal system right now, the legal system has a very clear definition of what is aggression underneath it. So, right. So people in civil society, most people understand that if I go and I take your stuff from you, if I forcibly take your stuff or if I, or if I break your stuff or if I hit you or if I kidnap you, or if I do any of this other stuff, that's violent, right? Okay, we, like under our legal system, those things are prosecuted. So, but the problem is there's a double standard here. The state does those things. The state does those exact same things and it calls it law, right? Uh, like um, uh, Max Stirner has this great, great um, quote where it's like, this, he's a German, he was a German philosopher. The state calls its own violence law and that of the individual crime. Right. And that's what it does. It, it, you, you have a double standard with the state. The state is an asymmetric power uh, center in, in society that says we get to hit you, but you don't get to hit us. Right. And that yeah. is where. Yeah. And, and but that caught means that we have a if that's true, that means we would have a duty to submit to their violence. So it, I don't see how you can morally justify right. that. Because and I, you're, it's a fair point, because I think we agree that part of the definition of government is that it has a monopoly on the use of force. Right. Yeah. I but I think that's not ideal, but it's the only option, because otherwise, if it doesn't have a monopoly on the use of force, you will quickly descend into the kind of civil war and anarchy and violence and innocent people getting hurt. I really think it has to be all you, one. You mean, or you all mean just other. like now? That's not what. So that we live in the most peaceable and free time in, in human history. Right? I, I mean, very flawed, right? Lots of problems. But you, we can't pretend that Americans who aren't born today aren't not in the 99.999% of most free and prosperous people to ever exist on this planet because they are. 
Okay, but if you're going to try to attribute that just to the state, that's a correlation causation fallacy, right? It's not because we have a government necessarily. It's through market innovation that allows those things to increase, right? Life cycles and, uh, uh, you know, just people's enjoyment of their own lives in general. So I don't think it would be, I don't think it'd be fair. I don't think you present enough evidence to say that, well, it's because there's a monopoly on violence that that's possible. Another example of this is that the state uh, states in, um, in relation to each other, right? So America, Canada, and Mexico, they have no monopoly on violence above them. So those countries interact anarchically between each other. There's no monopoly on violence over them that is imposed on them. There's the UN, which countries voluntarily join. You could bring that up. But there's no monopoly on violence above other countries and dictating how they must interact or imposing laws on how other countries must interact. The the international law legal system. And what's the result of that? Constant wars and destruction. You just said we're living in the most peaceful time in human history. We are. But both those things are true at once. Okay. Well, I mean, if you look at that, if we want to say, well, yeah, there's certainly wars. A lot of countries are not at war with each other. There is no world war right now. A lot of countries, it's um, and also the fact that countries are able to go to war has more to do with they're able to amass um, uh, huge amounts of resources through taxing their own populace. So it has more to do with the function of the state itself than it has to do that there's no state above them. Right. It has more to do that they can amass all these resources to pay for all these, these armies and militaries because they expropriate their own people. It's not because that they have no monopoly on violence above them. Well, I guess so at the international level, I get what you're saying, but it is it kind of gets convoluted. But I think the fundamental divide here is, I believe, and I don't want to misstate your beliefs. I believe you're an anarchist and I'm not right. I'm a libertarian. I believe in limited and small government, but not no government. Anarchism is Chaz Chop. That is what anarchism devolves into inevitably and always. Uh, And I don't want that kind of a society, even if in some individual instances, the, the, the violence that I that starts off that spiral, I am sympathetic to. So uh, under anarchism, you're not so bad things can ha- happen under anarchism. There could be warlords, right? There could this could happen. You, you could experience violence. The only difference is, unlike now, um, you are not um, you are not legally barred from fighting back against your ruler. Right. Or if in anarchism, if a warlord tries to impose himself on me and I shoot back at him, uh, Brad, I don't think you would be telling me, hey, you can't do that. That's wrong. But you are telling me that now. Right. You like you're telling you're t- well, if I'm being scenario, upon, you, would, you would have gotten to vote for the warlord and have a court system that protects your rights against him. OK, well, if if I have what what makes you think I had the people who are infringing against my rights are going to protect them? Right. Like, like, like what what incentive do the powers that be have to actually enforce my rights? They're a monopoly on violence. Because we have the three branches of our government placed in tension and opposition, pulling against each other's power. It's not perfect, but that Um, creates the incentive. The judiciary strikes down thousands of laws per year as unconstitutional or unlawful or unauthorized. And they do that because their power specifically exists to exercise more of their power as the judiciary. They must eliminate the power of other branches. What incentive do they have to fight each other compared to working together? 
Like, like what is there? What, like, this is like a, we're going to game theory now, but why wouldn't they just work together? The incentive structure there seems completely off to me to the point where they don't, they're not really in opposition. They could gain much more ground if they just work together. And that's often what they do. So I, I guess we agree that politicians seek to expand their own power. And they, they are generally, this isn't always true. Congress being feckless is, is proof that it's not always true. But for example, for judges to get exercise their authority requires them to shrink. It's like there's a pie, right? And for one to get, economics is not zero sum, but political power can be, right? For one of them to get more of the pie, they have to take it from the others, right? And so the system does have, and the problem is, right, like it's not well done in terms of our court system. That's because we have mostly progressive activist judges or neocon appointed judges who don't actually enforce the law. If we had more Neil Gorsuch's, you would have a very quote, like robust enforcement of the rule of law. And we can achieve that through the democratic and peaceful process. But this just seems like, like, yeah, wouldn't it be great if they enforce the law, right? Yeah, of course. Like, if you if there's laws that you agree with and they're not being enforced, of course you'd rather want them enforced than not, right? But, but how how do you think you're that's actually going to happen? Like, like, like if what you makes want you think- the laws that you do believe in to be enforced? You have to also support other laws that you don't like being enforced, so long as they are still the law and you work to change the law. Because if you just allow one law to be disregarded, then all the laws will be, including the ones we all agree are necessary, like laws banning murder. But, right? but I don't, I don't think it has to be an all or nothing. I think you can s- support laws, but you can make a principal distinction here. There's laws that you might say protect the individual's autonomy and property, like laws based through the NAP, like uh, you're not allowed to murder, you're not allowed to steal, you're not allowed to rape, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then you can say that laws that violate a person's property and autonomy those are bad and we should get rid of them. But there's no enforcement structure that allows you to make your subjective characterization, which I would probably mostly share, right? About which laws are um, defensive or aggressive or which ones violate the NAP and which ones don't. Any enforcement structure that lets you make that calculation lets everyone make that calculation. And many, many people are going to make that calculation incorrectly. AOC is going to say that opposing government healthcare is violence. SJWs are going to say that speech is violence. Christian extremists will say that being gay is violence against God. And quickly, everybody will be hurting everyone else. That, that's what's happening right now with the state. The, like, like, that's what's happening right now with, with democracy, where people are in, uh, creating laws that violate your rights and imposing them upon you. So your worst case scenario about if we, you know, some people might get it wrong or some people might, uh, you know, have, have some weird conception of rights that makes it makes it justify in their own head. I mean, of, of course, like people could people could be wrong about all sorts of things. Right. And they a lot of times they are. But that's that's what's happening right now on a massive scale. It's happening to such a degree where every time a cop, like every cops enforce the law, every single every law that is passed is ultimately a threat of violence against you. It's a threat of violence that a cops or some type of system will stop you, will physically detain you and probably arrest you in most cases uh, if you do not follow their edicts. So your whole thing where it's like, well, you know. Uh, yeah, people could get it wrong. Well, what about right now with the state? Because they in- actually right. in- they're enforcing violence right now against people. So uh, why, why would it be worse? To the, the question of proportionality, because, for example, you're right. Right now we do have police hurting people to enforce laws like stupid laws. Uh, I think Eric Garner was stopped over like illegal cigarettes or yeah. something stupid. 
I acknowledge that as a phenomenon, right? But you're talking about, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, dozens of unarmed people killed by police a year. Whereas the scenario you're describing, I think would lead to literally thousands and millions of people in open violence and conflict in the streets. Well, I, I want to clarify, the, res- the resolution is not that, you know, it, it, I agree that violence is not prudent, right? There's a lot of cases where openly resisting a cop is going to end very badly for you. And I completely agree with that, right? I'm not advocating people go out and start violently resisting cops just for their own good. But I'm saying that ethically speaking, from a, a NAP perspective, if someone is aggressing against you, that person has a right to defend themselves with proportional force. And I think if a cop is going to go and grab you're selling weed, which is a completely voluntary transaction with another adult, and some cop comes and grabs you, that cop is essentially no different, morally speaking, than a kidnapper. Yeah. So I guess what I'd say, and I'm sorry, Mark, to keep cutting you off. Oh, no, this is great. I'm having a blast. One one final thought for me is is that I, the same way, like, I've always been a person with a very kind of like, I guess you'd say like impulsive, like I like binge eat. I either drink a ton of coffee or none, right? I think on something like this, it has to be all or nothing. We have to principally oppose all political violence because if we open the door to a little bit of it, when we think it's justified, I think it opens a Pandora's box that we can't close. That's just my position kind of summarily stated. I know that you're not going to, I'm not going to change your mind. I don't think you're going to change mine, but I think that's our fundamental disconnect. I, if I, I do want to focus a little more, um, cause I think, you know, you guys probably have some broader philosophical agreement, uh, disagreements, uh, on the non-aggression principle or uh, on anarchism. And those are probably areas we could go on a lot of different rabbit holes down. But if we want to focus a little more just on the specific idea of political violence, it might behoove us, uh, from you, Ace, since you're talking in the, in the negative that is neg- never mm-hmm. acceptable. So it can be acceptable. If you, maybe you could illustrate an example or two of when, like what level it would be acceptable. Like for, uh, we could even look at the initial tweet. Like, do you think it is acceptable for um, for someone to just go slap a politician because they're upset about lockdowns? And and if so, like, do you see any kind of end to that? Where where would that be too extreme? Right. Sure. OK. So I, I think the slap is kind of like a joke. Right. I, I don't even take it that seriously. It's it's like like having a slap if someone like slaps you right i don't even see a um a way where someone has a right to defend themselves because after, if you slap someone there's no real um aggression afterwards intended painful, it depends on the slap slapped you ever seen the world the world slapping competitions oh yeah no if you've seen those those are those are assaults but specifically the slap of macron right is why i'm referencing it's like i don't even see that as you know that's almost nothing to me but i will say that if if you're a um, if you're a president and you're overseeing or you're the leader of a country and you're overseeing all these laws and your job as the executive is to see these laws through, right? You are engaged in massive amounts of violence. You are engaged in uh, enforcing um, you know wars overseas that just kill people and impoverish them. Your job is to enforce laws federally on drug prohibition, which locks up, you know, thousands of people each year and sends them to horrible, horrible like, cages and often makes them more violent when they come out, ruining people's lives. It seems that, and I, I, we're kind of like dovetailing kind of back to, you know, what, what I was saying before, but it's like that it to me, that is violence. And I, I, I if I could, I just want to, I do want to touch on one thing Brad said before, which is that we either have to eliminate all of it or none of it, right? But do you take that view with normal violence? That's not political. Like, it, it, do you think that, well, if we 
uh, if there's someone on the street uh, who's attacking me, I, if I attack them back, does that mean, therefore, that then we can just attack everyone? Because, because it, that, that, that was kind of your point. Because it's like, if you want to be all or nothing, you either have to be a pacifist or a psychopath. Yeah, but if you have a society that tolerates interpersonal violence, I, I, like we have to posit that the government gets to have the monopoly on force because that's the definition of the government. If you believe it, it should at all exist. And outside of that, uh, we have to have an absolute no tolerance policy for violence. But yes, somebody does have to be violent to violent criminals. Okay, why, what, but why is there a double standard? Why do you see a double standard for some guy on the street out there and not a guy, not a p- person wearing a badge? Like, because like, it comes down to the question of whether the government has the exclusive use of force. And I think it has to, to exist. Otherwise, you don't have a government, you have anarchy, and it spirals into mass violence. But if the state is... What we have now is the state imposing massive amounts of violence but you're uh, unlike anarchism you're not allowed to fight back you're legally not allowed to fight back right so the state imposes is imposing violence right now on people through these laws and at least under anarchism you could legitimately fight back against these people it would not be unjustified to fight back against your oppressor whereas when you have a monopoly on violence what you're saying is that you must submit to the power structure you must submit the to their violence is, the difference that in exchange for the state having the excuse the exclusive use of force which i acknowledge is far from ideal right uh we have rights right we have legal rights that we can enforce in court we have due process of law we have a society where there's lots of problems there's some crime increase in some cities but you walk down the street in america and nobody's going to hurt you or rob you or kill you 99.9 percent of the time Right. Whereas what you're saying, I just don't see how it doesn't devolve into blood in the streets every single day and mass violence, which is not what we have. The state is too big. It is oppressive. But that is a hysterical version of what we have today, because we do live in a relatively free and prosperous society. Well, if you have like you said, well, we have legal rights, right? Okay. well, ostensibly we do. We have them on paper. But the state is still like, like if the state aggresses against you and you take them to court, they are taking you to their court, right? Their court that is associated with their state apparatus. So it, it's, it's a severe um, uh, like infringement of like our concept of justice, right? To, to say that, well, yeah, like, like if, I, if I assaulted uh, one of you two and then I brought you to a court, but it was my brother's court, we would see this as an unfair, something unfair going on, right? So you think the judge has... Steve Arkist, I believe, is your brother. Yes, that's of course, yeah, yeah, Steve. So, for example, yeah, we, that's why we have an adversarial legal system, right? You get a defense attorney, there's a prosecutor. You think that a judge has an inherent bias toward the prosecutor. Why? Uh, well, the, oh, so yeah, no, they have an inherent, uh, well, it, because it's still the state run system, right? So even if you, I, I can't prove like without a shadow of a doubt that there is going to be some collusion, but I'm saying that there is more likely to be collusion than if you had a decentralized court system that was not, did, did not have a monopoly on violence, right? So it, it, you can just, this, a court system. No, no, no. You have polycentric law. Polycentric law is what international courts use. Like international, international law uses. Courts are feckless. 
The UN is a joke. No, no, I'm not talking about the UN. I'm talking, there have been other forms of polycentric law. There have been examples of anarchist societies who have used polycentric legal systems or common law or the law merchant is they've been known as in the past, like ancient Ireland, which lasted for at least 2000 years, had no state at all. And they had a legal system, a polycentric legal system. Um, and I, I, I do kind of like, I, I, I feel like I, I do kind of want to ask you a question, Brandon, it's kind of separate to this. If, if you, if you believe that it's you must submit, do you think it was more? Do you think that the people in the past, like minorities who have been oppressed by laws in this country in the past, where they've gone to jail for just being who they were, essentially, do you think those people have a moral obligation to su- just submit themselves to the state and go along with it? I think it depends. Um, it does depend because, for example, if we're talking about like literal slavery, the answer is no. But that's not a democratic society, right? The first part of the premise isn't there because they don't have any legal rights. If you're talking about, for example, I'll use a personal example as a gay person, right? Say that I lived in a state that had uh, horrible anti-sodomy laws in the year was 1995. Before Texas v. Lawrence, I think it was 2003, the Supreme Court decision that struck those laws down. Uh, would I have the right, living in the state of Texas where there was those laws, to then stage violent resistance against the government because I was having my rights transgressed? I think no. I think the solution would be to go out and campaign against the laws, use the freedom of speech that I enjoy, sue against the law, and overturn it in court, which is exactly what happened. And it turned in, it, it's a peaceful resolution towards justice and inequality that didn't involve a spiral of violence. But a lot of people are going to be now like lose a large part of their lives going to jail because they were, you know, and not to say that they would have done any better resisting, but, but you're saying that they have a moral obligation to go to jail because they broke the law by just existing. Right. Or as opposed to like waging civil war in the streets. Well, I I, know opposed to using defensive violence against people who aggress against you, which if, the police enforce the law, which we agree, means like violently resisting the state in a revolution. So do you think we're, are, do, do you think stone, the Stonewall rights were a bad thing in general, like morally speaking? Do you think they were unjustified in uh, like fighting back against those cops? They threw rocks, bottles, bricks, set police cars on fire? Yes. Okay, well, I, I strongly disagree, but I can respect that answer. Yeah, I just want to also like hone down on this point a little bit. It's I, I'm really interested in how you view this because Brad, like earlier, you said I think, and maybe maybe I got this wrong, but I think what you said was that it would be acceptable for say to violently resist slavery because in that system you're not really in democracy as you see it, even if the system involves voting and what have you. It, it's, you wouldn't really consider it democracy because the person being enslaved has had their right taken away. They're they're effectively been removed from the system, so it's not really an active exactly. democracy. Is that is that was that like a correct summation? of your position exactly so okay so i guess i guess that's where i'm i think we should clarify a little bit like where you see that line changing you know where because you're you're saying in the situation with you know the anti-sodomy laws you would not see that as as a you would you would see the violation of your rights but not to the point of of that it 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 changes that definition that you're no longer in in a functioning democracy so is it is it purely just if you're literally enslaved for you that you would say that's where the line is or are there other very good question part of the reason that it's different with i think like if you you view as like oppression of gay people is distinct from oppression of black people is that like gay people still had free speech they still were able to vote 
right? They were still within the system with agency to change it. Whereas slavery or even like Jim Crow segregation and, and not banning the right to vote or like stopping it is different in that sense because you don't, you can't, right? You can't change the system if you are not even a equal or even remotely equal member of it with that, if you don't have access to the system. But even in that case, I guess, well, I would say like for the Civil War as an example, you have a right to, to grab arms and resist a non-democratic state that wants to enslave you. No one disagrees about that, or at least I certainly don't. But um, to say in other cases, like the way that they achieved racial equality post-segregation was by and large through peaceful and democratic progress, not violent resistance. There was some, certainly, but it was on net counterproductive for the cause and also typically enforced against innocent third parties. And so for all those reasons, I still think in that scenario, it's misguided. Okay, uh, can I, ask, I, I, I actually want to ask him a question. If yeah. that's okay, I, I, yeah, if I can ask you a question. So I, I will preface this by saying that in a, in a democratic society, even if, even if we assume that everyone has a right to vote, right? You're like everyone in the society has a right to vote. They can participate in the system uh, as it would be known as. Um, the people have are free in the sense that they're free to vote and they're free to decide an outcome if they have a majority speaking. And I know this is a republic, so I'm kind of distilling it down, but it's the same principle. If there's a majority passes some rule or edict, they're not violating anyone's rights before the law, like within the process of like doing the democracy itself, they're not violating anyone's rights. But once that majority has decided to pass a certain rule, that's when the rights violation starts. That's when that law that they passed is going to infringe on my either my bodily autonomy or my external property that I have. Right. So and I, and I like there's very few laws that don't do that. That's so why we have the Bill of Rights, though, like because some things should be off limits for the 50 but, plus one freedom of but, speech, the right to vote, 13th Amendment, the First Amendment, property, right? The Fifth Amendment. And the problem then is that those aren't always fully enforced, though they are enforced. They're not fully, and I agree with you, but then the answer there is more robust enforcement. What's the point of a right if I can't enforce it myself? How can So it's a good question, but how can you enforce the right yourself without starting the Pandora so, box of violence? Well, no, because like in the same way that I can defend myself against a mugger, and after I do that, I don't see everyone looking around and start shooting everyone, right? The if I, if I shoot them. It's not so subjective as what counts as a rights violation in a broader sense of property and liberty. No, and freedom I, and- I, I disagree because if we look at, if, if you see some guy stealing something from your house, you obviously see this as theft. I don't see any reason why we should look at this, what the state does when they uh, tax your property or use eminent domain and just take your property from you is any different. Right. Well, you might say domain, but to be fair, they do also pay you full market value. Okay. Well, if, if my, if I have someone steal me, uh, steal uh, something from my house and then they pay me like 75% of what it was worth, I don't feel like I've, my rights are, are still being violated. You know, I don't because, disagree with you, but it's not the same as a mugger. Uh, no, I mean, it, it's the same. Okay. Well, no, because theft is not defined by what you get back. Theft is defined by the unconsensual taking of a person's property without their consent, right? Which is what, proportionality again. Sure. But, but, was, but, the main, but the point you were talking about was it, it is the same within theft, right? What ha- like, sure, they may give you something afterwards, but that doesn't mean it's not theft. Like, like the, the theft still happened. They took the property without consent. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't support eminent domain. So the answer to me there is simply to ban it in the Constitution. Uh, well, okay, but then you're asking the state to like enforce itself. You're asking the state to ban things and on that's itself. part of our distinction is I think a constitutional republic with the separated powers can do that imperfectly. It can do that, whereas you seem to believe it cannot. Yeah, it's like a gun-free zone sign, right? If you see this, if mass shooters walking up to go kill a bunch of people in a building and they see a gun-free zone sign, they're not going to be like, oh, well, it says right there, I can't take this gun in and kill these people, so I'm just going to turn around, right? It's like, no, that never happens. I don't so, think it's the same at all. Oh, I, I mean, I, I don't see it. The, the, if, if you, you said before, a state is a monopoly on violence, right? And this includes it. They have a monopoly on um, arbitration in the sense that there are there are... The, within the legal structure, they are state courts, right? They, they, there's different jurisdictions that have authority, but they're still ultimately, it's uh, federalism. So it ultimately, they have their own uh, jurisdiction, but ultimately the federal court is the top dog. Um, so ultimately, they the state has a monopoly on interpreting the constitution and enforcing it. And why do they have, like, what incentive structure do they have to enforce something that restricts themselves? It's a good answer. But the question is, the problem is that you're viewing the state as a singular, which if you have the separation of powers into three branches that are jealously guarding the power and pulling it from each other, it's not a singular. It's different branches of the state competing with each other. And that creates the incentive. So for your example, it's more like we had, say that we said brown haired people have a monopoly on gun ownership. And at the gun-free zone sign, you had one brown-haired person with a gun enforcing it, and you had another brown-haired person who with a gun who didn't who wanted to go into the gun-free zone. So it's like there is still push and enforcement of it because those powers are dispersed and set up in competition. Well, okay, but I mean, you can say they're dispersed, and, and this is certainly true to some extent, but I've I, I, I disagreed before, and I'm still going to continue to disagree, that they actually have incentives to actually fight each other. But besides for that, um, even if the Supreme Court says something, the Supreme Court itself does not have any enforcement in power. It, the Supreme Court just says yes or no. That's all they say. So you, we're still stuck with the problem of what, like, why would the executive, who is the enforcer in, a, you know, a democratic republic, uh, the executive, what incentive do they have to enforce things that are going to restrict them? Well, clearly they have some incentive because can you name a Supreme Court decision in the last 100 years that that was handed down and then the executive refused to follow it? Oh, I mean, there's been I, not off the top of my head. No, but um, there are cases of that just that thing happening. In fact, you have certain laws. What will happen is the Supreme Court will go through and they'll say, nope, you can't do this. Well, the Obamacare thing, right? Didn't they turn it to a tax? Isn't that the, they said the fee for not paying for Obamacare? They changed it to a tax. Well, and they like, oh, held okay. Obamacare. Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. They, right, right. But that's my point is that they go in and they twist the legislation around so that they can get through their same well, end what, goals through. Without. What you're describing is as if they'd struck down Obamacare and Obama said, nah, we're doing it anyway. And I mean, that didn't happen. Right. But I'm saying that if they had gone with the, if they had not changed the wording, uh, they, uh, they, with them changing the wording of that, they were able to get it through. So even though the Supreme Court well, they would just have upheld said, it over as constitutional due to co- some constitutional, yes. like legal philosophy disagreements that I wouldn't share. Right, but my point is that they were able to change a term and still get their end result. So that they did go, or they did circumvent it in some sense by just changing instead of a fee, they changed it to a tax. And uh, but the, you know what, like the Obamacare thing isn't a great example because you still had like a huge push to overturn it. And then one by one vote, it failed, right, to overturn it. So clearly it still could be through peaceable and lawful means overturned. Even the Supreme Court now is considered 
like undoing that Supreme well, Court decision. So clearly we're not at a dead end here. And I also I, don't know that what about Obamacare would justify political violence. It's wrong. I, and it definitely infringes people's rights. But it's like expanding Medicare eligibility, Medicaid eligibility, uh, and having an individual mandate, how that justifies then like political violence targeting lawmakers or anything like that, I wouldn't see. Well, I didn't say that specifically uh, justified political violence, although I do think Obamacare is essentially a fascist document. It's the corporations like wrote it and the medical establishment, essentially it's collusion between the government and the medical establishment uh, and cronies essentially. But besides with that point, um, this, what, what is, um, political violence or violence from the state is what ensures Obamacare can even be a thing. Right. So there are other aspects of violence, like taxation is a good example. Right. If you have an, if you have a right to resist a mugger, I don't understand why you wouldn't have a right to resist a mugger when they're wearing a special badge. And you can say, well, they're the state, but that doesn't give any moral legitimacy to the state. Right. Like you, it, it, someone could, a warlord in anarchy in an anarchist society could come along and say, hey, you now have to listen to me now. I have this badge. You, you signed my imaginary social contract or something. But, but that wouldn't give them a right. That wouldn't obligate you or something to follow their rules. You know what I mean? So yeah, I, don't I do see- know what you mean. And I mean, your point is like the social contract doesn't exist. Yeah. Literally true. But practically, it sort of does exist. Well, I mean, practically, like you had, that's like saying, right, I have a right to be free. And, but, but then the count, that doesn't become untrue if you say, well, you're enslaved, right? We're, we're talking about two different things. I'm talking about they ethically don't have a right to impose themselves on me. And it's practically, descriptively, it's true that they do impose themselves on me. But I'm talking about whether they ha- I have an obligation to obey them. Uh, but I guess what I would say, though, is that I don't think there's any alternative to some minimal level of coercive force being used by this. Well, we can talk about that uh, if uh, you want to. Like, it's up to you, Mark. Because yeah, there's I, I no think alternative, it, I think at the I end, a lot immoral. I think at the end, like a lot of this, this kind of more specific resolution, the differences do come down to a broader probably philosophical disagreement you guys would share about um you know the nature of government or what government should be or what have you or what you know, or, or anarchism yeah absolutely sure. go for it so i know that you don't support for and i'm not going to say that you do support like the attack on Rand paul or people like that or even like vice versa i'm I, i'm assuming you wouldn't support like the shooting of gabriel giffords or anyone anything like that but how could you if you support some political violence establish a standard that some people wouldn't also use to justify those attacks. Okay, sure. So there's different levels. There's different tiers of proportionality at work here, right? So there's people who are just voters. I don't think there's any justification to attack voters because they just, they're like almost economic inputs within the system. They don't really, they may vote, but they don't really like create laws or enforce them or do anything like that, right? Um, And I think we can create a standard where it's like, we can use the state's own standard here against itself in this argument. Because going back to my analogy, it's like, if I hire someone to go steal something, uh, if I hire some uh, person to go rob a place, I am still held guilty by the state's own standards, right? So there is still, we can still find ways in which like, okay, we can look at the state, what the state did over here by stealing uh, from people through taxation or eminent domain or something like that, we can equate that just the exact same to if a normal person just did that same thing, right? So we already have standards. And, and I agree that there's some level of subjectivity, but there's still subjectivity within the state's own system. So if you're objecting to a, subject, a little bit of subjectivity within anar- an anarchist framework, I, I, I still don't see why um, 
uh, how you get around that with the state, because even within the state's own laws, determining what level of justification or what level of force is justified between certain acts, that's different from state to state, right? So we still have that right now. But I do think the the non-aggression principle is a good way to view it, right? You um, now there's a certain amount of proportionality you have to uh, get factor in with that, but it, you still that's still the baseline. That's still the guiding principle of all libertarianism, which is trying to determine okay which actions are you know violent. And there are some gray areas. I'll I'll give you that, but that doesn't refute the principle. Well, f- so follow up is um, what is the distinction between Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez directly writing and voting for a law to tax you more and steal more of your property and her passionate supporters who vote for her specifically so she'll do that. Yeah. So I, I think the difference is that they are commandeering in a, a coercive system itself, like they're rising to a level of authority and they're accepting that authority, right? So uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is accepting that authority. Whereas um, in a democracy, when people are voting, uh, you can't really say whether they're voting for uh, for those policies or whether they're just voting for a specific person because they're afraid of that other person. So this is my other point I didn't bring up earlier. and I should have, which is that the voters in a democratic system are not at, you can't really say that they're voting out of their own free choice. Because what's going to happen is if they don't, um, there will be someone elected at the end of the day, even if whether they vote or not, right? There will be someone who is elected. So when someone goes and votes, they're voting in their own interest to avoid the other person they don't like imposing violence on them through laws. So it's actually a defensive mechanism. They're voting in a defensive manner because, you know, if uh, they may have some, you know, illegal immigrant and they're going to vote for a liberal because they don't want the Republicans, um, you know, attacking that family member who is here illegally. Right. So we can't say that they're consenting to the system or, you know, because they are in a coercive framework within that structure. But one of the problems I have with this is the distinction between who it's fair game and who it's not. For example, and obviously at a certain point, this becomes a just following orders becomes untenable. Right. Um, but a police officer, for example, who doesn't support the criminalization of heroin, but gets sent to do a drug bust and then commits violence to, to enforce that law. Um, that law wasn't written by them. They don't necessarily support that law. But you're saying violence would be justified against them, even though they don't have the ultimate responsibility for that policy. Yes, because that actually makes them more responsible, because if they did not enforce that law, it never would have been enforced. Those those laws never would have uh, been materialized without those enforcers. So if we if we broke it down into a tier, I actually think the enforcers are the most morally responsible. So the police and the the military are the most responsible for the immoral actions. And then right under them would be the politicians who ordered them to do it. Oh, so I guess we disagree there because I think the politicians who write the law, I mean, if I become a police officer, right, I probably become because I want to help rape victims, murder victims. I want to protect my neighbors. Right. And then I in order to work as a police officer, I must also enforce all the laws. Maybe there are a few that are like crazed anti-drug nuts, right, that go in there just to like beat the shit out of some marijuana dealers. But I I'm assuming many that is not the case. And if they are going into those roles for what we would probably at least agree are the well-intentioned parts, and then also doing the poorly intentioned parts, because that's a necessary precursor. If we had no police, then no one would enforce the anti-murder laws. No one would arrest rapists. 
That's... And so you can't like, do you see what I'm saying? How do you make that distinction then? Sure. Well, for one, we, we, I, there's two things here. Um, one, we don't um, take if, if a murderer has killed someone. Right. We don't take all the good things they've done in their lives or their, you know, and uh, say, oh, well, you know, we're, go- we're just going to let that we're just going to let this slide because it, when he was 10 years old, he saved some other kid from drowning. You know what I mean? So even if we, we can't just say, well, cops do good things, too. So therefore, you know, it's not really their fault when they do bad things that that doesn't logically follow. Um, we we judge each action individually uh, according to them, right? So I don't I don't think it's fair to say that. Well, they do good things too, so therefore you know they're off the hook. But it's proportionality. They do a lot of things that are good and some things that are bad. Well, in when I'm talking about proportionality, I'm talking about proportionality in force. So I don't think if a cop is just trying to stop an actual murder, I don't think it would be justified to, you know, use force against that cop. He's because he's doing something that you or I would be justified in doing. Right. You and I would be justified in doing the same thing the cop would be. So I don't think it would be justified to attack the cop there. If the cop is doing something that you or I would get assault, you would I, you or I would get shot for justifiably. Like if if I saw some kid down the street taking drugs and I drug him to my basement or something and, and locked him in a cage, um, this uh, that kid would justifiably be justifiably be able to shoot me. Right. <laughs> he would be able to stop me from doing that. Now, your other point is that we it's not that we wouldn't have cops. It, we would have people def- just only defend their job would only be to defend your rights. Right. So you're taking you're saying, well, we, without police, who would do anything? It's like, well, it, it would be like saying, well, if we didn't have the state can uh, a monopoly of, of clothes production, who would make the clothes? Right. It's, no, it's, it's not the same because one has a free rider problem and is a public good and one is not. No, it, no. Uh, defense is the least of the public goods, right? You like if you're going to go the public goods route, you could go the military because that's much more of a, a justifiable position if you wanted to make that claim. But police officers, that's not free rider. Uh, Gustave de Molinari uh, uh, in the 1800s talked about this in the um, um, the I forget what it's called the uh, privatization of security. It might be called. Um, and he talks about this, how, no, you can subscribe to different um, the services, different uh, agencies. And we have this now, and they're called countries, right? The different countries have different armies and different police officers. So there's not one world government with one world police. There are different jurisdictions and different places on earth right now that have uh, those, uh, those frameworks right now. But so the problem with that, I think one, it is still a free rider problem because you can't decide who's... For example, within a town, right, the police couldn't go around and say, oh, well, these 60 percent of the residents are paid up on their police dues, a privatized police. uh, And those 40 percent aren't. So we'll only stop the murder if the victim is one of the people on our list of subscribers. I mean, that's not a free rider problem. It is because you have to either pay for policing for the whole town and in which case Anyone can say, eh, I won't put my hand in the bucket because they're going to do it anyway without me because they need to. So there is a free rider problem there. But the flip side, too, is it's just not moral. Even somebody with no resources deserves to be protected by the police. There's um, So we might say it's not a good thing that someone doesn't have resources to be protected. But I just want to clarify, there's no ob- there's no right there's no obligation to enforce other people's rights, right? It would be a contradiction in terms. If I have a right to be free from coercion, um, the fact that other people, their rights have been violated does not give them a right to coerce me to help them enforce their own rights. That would be like a a self-defeating contradiction within libertarian standards. But I do agree with you. that, That would be like if you were forcing people to be police, which we're not. 
No, but you're forcing them to fund the police. You're for you're you're violating their rights by forcing them to fund the police in general. So that that is still a rights violation. Right. You're stealing their property to do it. Yeah, you're I'm not okay. enslaving okay them. I mean, I mean okay, okay some level of it, right? This is no. the anarchist anarchist divide, right? No, we, we, we don't we, we don't need some cancer. We can just get rid of it all. All right, guys, before we wrap up here, I got to let you know about one of our great sponsors, our longtime sponsors at Lauren Zotti, Italy. If you are a fan of coffee, if you like a nice, fresh cup of joe to wake up in the morning, as I do, you're going to want to check out our friends at Lauren Zotti, Italy. They deliver fine premium Italian coffees right to your door in these nice little tins that look so wonderful sitting on your counter there. And if that weren't all enough, these guys are great libertarians. They are Patreon supporters of this show. They are absolutely worthy of your support. If that all wasn't enough, these guys do more than just sell coffee. They also help other entrepreneurs set up their own coffee businesses, help them acquire equipment, acquire financing, everything they need to start their own coffee business, start their own coffee shops. So you definitely want to check them out for that reason, if that's something that's been on your mind. Either way, just fantastic people at Lorenzotti, Italy. Amazing people, fantastic people you'll want to support support them if you're fans of the show. Heck, even if you're not, if you're listening to this by accident, check them out anyway. They have great coffee. Lauren Zotti, Italy. You can find them at laurenzotti.coffee. That's L-O-R-E-N-Z-O-T-T-I dot coffee. And you do not want to forget your Lions of Liberty listener discount. Just use discount code ROAR for 10% off your order. Yeah, I just don't think that enforcing like basic rights and having police is cancer. Oh, well, well, no, but but the difference is so when we're defining terms about like what a police officer is, right? It, it, we have to we have to define things by what their unique property is, right? So if you just go around and you start defending people's rights, that doesn't necessarily make you a cop because every person on earth would be justified in doing that. What makes them a police officer is their right to enforce legal violence on things that you and I would not be justified on enforcing, right? So that that is the deter that is what determines what a cop is, right? Because if we just determined it by people protecting other people's rights, well, then every person would be a cop because every person would have a moral right to do right. so. And I guess, again, we get back to this divide, which is you. I believe that you have to ha- give someone a monopoly on the coercive use of force because if everyone has it, you devolve into like the state of man, right? Like pavement bashing each other over the bulls for, for water. Um, can I ask you a question? Uh, do you support a one-ruled government? Um, no. Not in, certainly not in, in practice. But, but why not? You said we need a monopoly on violence. There's all these countries around. Society. Yeah, there's all. Yeah, the world is a society if you extrapolate it out far enough. So I don't see why you need. So there's all these different countries who are not um, under any other country's rule. Right. So America and America and Iceland are, you know, countries where neither one of them is ruling the other. They're on, you know, equal playing fields, essentially. Now, so you have the EU, uh, EU and stuff like that, but that's, you know, we can just write that off as like a voluntary association within the framework of states, not with citizens, but with states. So why why isn't there a monopoly on violence needed for all these countries who are interacting in an anarchist framework between each other? But but we need one for interactions between people. Well, so but I view the the fact that they're like it's just impractical that you could have a monopoly of force, right? Because you have these countries and these different armies and governments. But like the fact that we don't is why countries go to war and fight each other and massive wars and people are killed because there is nobody above them that has well, a monopoly of force. Well, then why don't you support a world government? Don't you want to end that? 
It's just, I mean, you can't like that's okay. But I know if you could, okay. But if you could theoretically, just uh, do you think it would be a good, a better thing than what we have now? If you're asking with no like at all practical concerns, whatever, if I thought we could have one government for the whole world that had the, the kind of like limited government and democratic Republic things that I believe in. Sure. But that's fairy tales, right? That's not the world as we live in it. So it's not, a real position. Okay, but you I, I just wanted to clarify you would support that if it, it was possible. You're saying yeah. if it was if it was akin to like a government that, similar to the United States has in terms of yeah. the structure with the yes. government. So and- if you told me tomorrow I could snap my fingers and the whole world would be the United States all through peace and none of the practical concerns gone, sure. Yeah, why not? People would be wealthier and freer instantaneously. Okay, well, so all right, I I can I can respect that consistent answer, right? Because that but usually when people talk about anarchism, they always stop short of world government, and it's a very big inconsistency. But so I, I do respect that answer. I, I disagree fundamentally because I, I think one of the biggest problems with minarchism in general is that just look at the United States. The United States started as one of the smallest governments in world history, and it became one of the largest empires in the world. I don't necessarily disagree with that, but. In many ways, that's because it was going away from the American system, not towards it. Okay, but but how do you stop those people from going away from the American system? Like, like that's the the struggle of like the liberty movement. Okay, yes, I agree. You podcast about it, damn it. You argue. You you debate. You push for these things. You run for office. You be a journalist, a talking head on a podcast. Convince people because I just view that as not perfect. Certainly not perfect. But what's the alternative? You take up arms and head to the streets. I don't want to live in a well, world where people are constantly fighting each other. And I mean, okay. if you look at the countries that are in civil war or a state of anarchy or a failed state, none of them are very pleasant places to live. Well, I, I have to be clear. A failed state, uh, statelessness is not the same as anarchism. A failed state is not anarchism. Anarchism is a social norm or a social ethic, which states that it is immoral or unethical to rule over other people. So I, I, I understand, dominate. but I would just say that in practice, anarchism really only results in from a failed state or from like the pure version of it of a pure anarchy isn't that but it can't exist in the real world in my view without becoming chaz chop or a failed state well, or something but like. are, you, are you familiar with other anarchist societies and throughout history like medieval iceland Kos- uh, the republic of kospaya neutrals moors and the neutral moors net um ancient ireland ancient ireland's a good example because they lasted close to two thousand years uh so medieval Iceland last not intimately familiar with the details of any of them no um but i'm pretty skeptical that any of them could really apply to like today okay but that's okay life. okay well that's one claim but i mean uh, your claim previously was that this it just couldn't it just couldn't work right and it just and naturally will devolve into chaz and, and i, I think i'm here today no, but in the most states are not here well, today. Then, then that's correct, right? Okay. Well, no, but by that definition, uh, state states are um, can't be justified either because most states will fail. Where is Rome? Where's the Where's the Roman Empire right now? But there's still a state in all the places that were once. No, they're in new the states. Empire. Yeah, they're new states. But the, but the point is that if we're going to judge anarchism because it doesn't last, we're going to have to judge states like that too. Now, yeah, sure. No, it, but the difference is like if that would be true if states existed for a while, then became anarchists. But it seems like what you're saying is these rare pockets of anarchism lasted for a time, then became states. And that, that seems to me like ultimately, and then don't go back, seems to me like ultimately what would always happen. Well, I mean, the international law, the international like 
playing field right now is anarchist, right? It's it's like between states. Between states, it is there. That's the longest lasting anarchist system in the world is actually states interacting with other people. Yeah, with other I don't agree with you, right? They teach you that in like foreign policy 101, that like international relations is anarchism. That's a correct statement. But I'm saying what I'm saying applies to societies, obviously, like, well, don't geo- you think it's a, I would have, what is the society to you? Well, I guess that's a difficult question. Do we, um, yeah. That's a whole nother three hour debate we can do. Right, right. But I, I, if I could just uh, say, I, I would view a society as just people interacting together. And specifically, I think trade is a big part of what makes a society society. So I think people interacting and cooperating together within some, you know, framework or within some framework or within some geographical locality would count as a society. Now, that scales all the way up. We could scale well, we're talking that about a nation state, though, like a yeah. nation with borders and a government and right. an internal rule of law. That's a society. Well, I, I don't see, but I don't see why you, uh, so are you saying it's impossible to have a society without, like, like, or, like, for example, if you're saying that you need a society to have a state, the state could have never arisen in the first place, right? Like, like for a state to be created, there had to have been no state prior to that. So people prior to the state got together and formed a state. So that proves that people, the society came before the government did. Like, I don't even buy, mind you, I have to clarify, I don't even buy that's the creation story of the state. I think the state is a roving, started out as a roaming band of gangs and later solidified their power by locking down, locking in place and coercing people. But even if we grant the idea that people just came together and formed a government, even that, it would still assume that a society predated the government. So societies. Well, but at, at that point, it, what you're talking about to me isn't a society. It's the state of man before dating the government. That seems like such an arbitrary distinction to me, though. It's like it, it's like it, it, it's only there to like justify the state. I don't see what, what other justification you could have to define society that way. Like if, if people are interacting with each other in the exact same way, except uh, beforehand, they don't have a state. And then afterwards, they do have a state. I don't but see not how that's the same way, because by creating the state and giving it the monopoly over force, that's how you take a, a, a state of man where people are raping and pillaging and fighting each other. Um, and you create a society with a rule of law where that happens much less because you have this one authority that you've delegated the power to maintain the but rule if, of law to. So it's not the it, same before and after. It's fundamentally changing it. And that's why you do it. It's transforming the society from one organizational structure to another by creating a state. But I don't. I disagree that it's it's but it's wasn't a society and now it's becoming a society. So if we go back to what you said that without a state, you know, you takes the classic Hobbesian view that life is short, brutal, and nasty uh, without a state. If life was that way, how could people ever come together to create the state in the first place? Right? If, if without the state, everyone is just killing each other and there can be no cooperation or no social structure, then there would have been no social structure to create the state in the first place. That was my argument. Yeah. And I guess, honestly, I'm, I, I don't know like the origins of the first civilizations and the history of all that well enough to really explain how that would have occurred, but obviously it did. Right. I, I'm not asking you for like an anthropological uh, um, source, but I, I'm just saying like, uh, just th- theoretically, it would seem that the, my hypothetical would show that people were able to come together, even if you want to buy into the whole like myth of like people just got together and formed a state, which I don't buy into. Even if, if you want to buy into that, it would seem that the state would, people would have to come together and cooperate prior to the state. 
right? But they the would first, have. So the first states, though, I, I suspect, and again, uh, we're getting into territory where I admit I don't really know the answers, but I suspect would either have been the kind of the religious nature of man gravitating towards a leader who they like view because and like humans aren't the same as foxes, right? Like they have like this thinking and this notion of like religion and higher purpose, some sort of like authority that they believed was ordained by that or a coercive state, like a, maybe like a roving warlord or something that created it. And then it became a state by through changing over time. Like well, obviously, the first the first civilizations were probably despotisms. Uh, I, I mean, sure, but I, my my point was just to be a, a hypothetical thought experiment to show that even if we gra- like if we grant the premise, now the first states were like ro- anthropologically, we we have pretty good sources that states were just roving bands of gangs who settled down in a specific area because they realized they could expropriate more property from peasants by just settling down and making them rule work and letting them keep. Uh, a part of their um, letting them keep a part of their product, their fruits of their labor, in, if, as long as they listen to them, right? So it was essentially these roaming bands of gangs came on and they were like, they lowered their time preference to the point like, okay, we can just settle down here and increase wealth for ourselves by just uh, um, let it, making these people work for us instead of coming through, taking a little bit of their stuff, burning it down and then running to the next place. So that's kind of the foundation state. But my, my point was just like, from a thought experiment, it would show, my, my thought experiment would show that people were able to cooperate prior to making a state to form the state itself. So that would kind of discredit the Hobbesian view. if it came from view. coercion, then they weren't exactly cooperating to create. They were, no, they were cooperating to coerce. Okay, well, I appreciate your thought on that, but I do think we've kind of veered into a <laughs> Yeah, we, we did. We got really off it. Mark, you want to steer us back and do it? We uh, have veered. Well, yeah, I, I think we're, I'm going to just tie it right back in to, to the initial resolution. It, it all does really stem, I think, ultimately from a philosophical disagreement about the state, the, yeah. the non-aggression principle, and there's, there's probably a, a 35 different directions we can kind of go in on, on this one, but I've enjoyed uh, listening to this, watching this being a fly on the wall. You guys are awesome conversationalists awesome debaters that be- need very little supervision so i it was very fun for me to be able to sit back and, en- and mostly enjoy the show but i think we should circle back i think unless either of you have uh any other like more specific statement uh, questions for the other i'll let you do that if you want uh, otherwise i think we can get into our closing statements and just kind of try to t- tie this back into the initial resolution but uh do either of you have any more questions before we do that i'm good to just have some like final remarks all right Ace, anything else all right. no, you, covered, you got to a lot of good questions with each other, which I, which I like a lot. So uh, uh, we did start with Brad. So I'm going to give Brad the last word and allow okay. Ace to do his closing statement. Again, disagreeing with the resolution, political violence is never acceptable in democratic societies. Ace, take it away. All right. Yeah. So ultimately, my entire foundation for this, uh, my point of view on this is due to the nap, due to like, uh, Brad, you would identify as a libertarian. You say you don't agree with all of it, but generally speaking, more or less. So to me, libertarianism is self-ownership and the nap, right, which says that you have a right to be free from initiatory coercion. So if we consistently apply that principle, right, I see no reason, no logical reason why we should say that's okay for, let's say, um, a person mugging you on the street or a, a criminal who is going to bash you in the head or something like that, opposed to a cop, because it would seem to me that that is just um, special plead. It's creating the logical fallacy of special pleading. You're creating an exception without giving a, a principled reason for why uh, there's some moral uh, transmogrification or something to change the moral nature of the, to these two groups. Um, 
I think ultimately, if you have a right to be free from coercion, you have a right to be free from coercion. I don't see any principled reason to um, say that, uh, well, these people you get to coerce you, these people are not allowed to coerce you. And the state is the largest group of coercive people on the planet. The, you take any congressman out there right now, and they have created le- legislation that has uh, stolen and killed more people than any mass murderer in prison right now, right? The, the amount of violence that had, they've inflicted on people both uh, across the pond, like through sanctions, where they starve people, like the, uh, the genocide in Yemen right now with the sanctions and the funding of the, uh, the Saudi Air Force, like, or the helping, I should say, uh, like all of these things happening right now, these are things we, if it was done by a private criminal, we would all be horrified. We'd say, oh my God, you're a monster. But if you have the state, we look, well, it's just like, you know, just simple policy. Well, no, it's not policy. If you look behind the policy, there's thousands of people kidnapped. They go to prisons where many of these people in prison are beaten and raped often. And uh, then not even talking about the stacks of bodies that these people leave behind in their weight, behind their laws. And it's both the people who sign these laws and the enforcers of the uh, like the cops in the military who bring this about and actualize it in, in real space. So to me, they are completely morally culpable and morally disgusting. Um, I, I don't view them any more any differently than I would view any other criminal, except that there's much more of them and they have much bigger sway. And my neighbors think it's somehow wrong for me to defend myself against them when I would not be fine defending myself against a common murderer. All right. And Brad, toss it over to you. Final words. You're taking the affirmative on the statement. Political violence is never acceptable in democratic societies. Let's hear it. The story of the United States of America is more or less a slow march towards freedom and prosperity, right? It started out with a lot of darkness, but some really good ideas. uh, And it slowly kind of moved towards that for more groups of people, whether that's women earning the right to vote, whether that's LGBT rights, an end to segregation and Jim Crow. All of these things were achieved through a democratic, in a broad sense, a process of political action and freedom uh, within a society with a rule of law. And in all of these cases, instances of violent protest or political violence actually hurt the cause more than they helped. So I just don't believe fundamentally that if you oppose things like Senator Rand Paul being attacked, people trying to murder members of Congress, uh, Democrats or Republicans, that there's any system in which you can allow some and not allow the, the others, because where you draw the line will be different from where your neighbor draws the line. And everybody thinks everybody, everything is violence these days, speech or rights violations. I have a right to this. I have a right to that. So basically, I think we need to draw a line in the sand, say that political violence is never acceptable never stand for it as a society, condemn it, whether it's left or right, whether it's a horrible person or a person we like who's the victim, and then push for our ideas and our message to win in the marketplace of ideas. We have freedom of speech. Thankfully, we still do. We still have a society where we can influence our leaders. We can replace them if if we can convince our fellow citizens and our neighbors. And we should utilize that and reject political violence across the board lest we open a Pandora's box that leads us to devolve into mass violence in the streets. All right. Well, that wraps it up. 
Brad, Ace, thank you guys both for participating in this debate. Uh, it was awesome for me because I got to mostly sit back and watch and I had a blast doing that. You're both very excellent uh, debaters and, and conversationalists and it makes my job a hell of a lot easier. So thank you to your bo to both of you. Thank you to my man, Top Lobster, for sponsoring this entire month of deba debates. Uh, you can see his amazing graphics. Head over to toplobster.com. Uh, use discount code ROAR for 10% off your order. He is sponsoring all of these debates every single Monday in the month of August. Another debate just like this one. We got three more to go. Uh, again, thank you guys both. Keep up the great work. And I know you're going to, of course, keep on roaring. Thanks, Brad. Uh, thanks, Farm. Thanks so much. All right, gang. I hope you enjoyed that spicy little debate there between Ace Arcist and Brad Palumbo. Hope you enjoyed that one as much as I did. And uh, it is just beginning again. This is only week two, and there are three more debates to come here on the flagship Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, it's not just the flagship you get access to by slapping that subscribe button. You also get to hear the stellar work of my compatriots here, my fellow Lions. You get Brian McWilliams every single Wednesday with his special esoteric. No, it's not esoteric, but it is something. His special brand of uh, of comedy, culture, and liberty every single Wednesday, slapping you upside the head with his hot takes on current events and all sorts of fun and stellar and uh, curse-laden rants over on Electric Liberty Land while John Odermatt wraps things up on Thursdays with his adventure known as finding freedom highlighting tales and stories of those who have found more freedom in their lives and helping you do the same you get that all for the price of one all three shows for the price of one that price is free you just gotta hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcatcher to get this greatest liberty variety show on earth delivered to your earbuds three days a week. And if you're just craving for more, if you're craving for bonus content like Conspiracy Corner, if you're craving for bonus content like bonus segments with many guests, live streams of all these debates, you're going to want to head over to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty for as little as $5 a month. You get access to all that great stuff. And then one more thing, don't forget, this entire month is sponsored by Top Lobster. You got to head over to Top lobster.com use that discount code roar for 10 percent off your order you are definitely going to find awesome gear there that you're actually going to want to wear that's the great thing about his stuff it's not just liberty stuff that we want to wear and you know you know we can you know wear at our liberty conventions you can actually wear this stuff out in public and start awesome conversations i have done this myself so again head over to toplobster.com our sponsor for this entire debate series use discount code roar for 10 percent off that order and i will see you guys here next week we have another debate coming this one between current candidate for the chairmanship of the Libertarian National Committee and current chairman of the Libertarian Party of Los Angeles, Angela McCardle, will be debating the man who just wants you to stop being poor, uh, Matt Erickson, who has, of course, been very critical of the Mises Caucus strategy that Angela has been pursuing, has been advocating for, and they will be debating the resolution, do we need another Ron Paul revolution? Looking forward to that one. You can access it now. Again, by heading over to Patreon, patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Folks, until next time. Live long and live free.